This podcast is brought to you by Podcast Nation. Welcome to Raw Beauty Talks. I'm your host, Erin Trelor. Ready to peer behind the highlight reel and all those polished pictures of the world's biggest influencers and wellness experts, we're going to uncover what beauty, health, and wellness truly means in today's world. As someone who really struggled with disordered eating and negative body image, I became a health coach because I'm passionate about redefining health and wellness so that it's less about the weight on the scale and more about how we feel. Let's pull back the curtain for some raw beauty talks. Well, everyone, we're in for a treat today. I'm so excited about today's guest. Dr. Judd Brewer is joining me. He is a New York Times bestselling author, a neuroscientist, addiction psychiatrist, and thought leader in the field of habit change. In his most recent book, Unwinding Anxiety, he distills more than 20 years of research and hands-on work with thousands of patients, including Olympic athletes, coaches, leaders in government and business, creating a clear solution-oriented program that anyone can use to feel better. Three key steps, no matter how anxious they feel. And you all know that I have been through the ringer with anxiety. So I'm so, so, so thrilled to have Dr. Brewer here to talk to us. He's the Director of Research and Innovation at Brown University's Mindfulness Center. And honestly, I could spend the whole episode just talking about his initiatives and the work that he's done. But you know me, I love to deliver the tools and the practical, tangible tactical skills for all of you to start implementing right away. So let's dive in. Thank you so much for being here, Dr. Brewer. Thanks for having me. So first of all, I feel like anybody who's accomplished as much as you have has to be quite passionate about the work that they're doing. And so I'm so curious as to why you do what you do. You know, that's a great question. And I, I agree with you. You've got to love what you're doing, especially if you do it a lot. Yes. <laughs> or life would suck. <laughs> <laughs> so I am fortunate enough to be able to, or I've kind of moved things in the direction that really helps me live my passions. And it kind of started, you know, at the beginning of medical school, I was kind of stressed out and started meditating. And I was thinking, wow, this stuff's pretty good. <laughs> you know, I was learning a lot about how my mind work. And at the time, you know, I was really interested in like why we get sick when we get stressed. And so I was studying that from a molecular biology perspective and doing things like that. And then I decided to take this big leap. So when I finished my MD PhD program and I started residency in psychiatry, I had a chance to kind of rethink like, what do I really want to be doing? And I was thinking I wanted to be doing things that were relevant for people because we found a bunch of things in my research that seemed helpful. But then people asked, well, you know, those are in mouse studies. Those are in, you know, this or that study. How do we know that applies to humans? And good question. The short answer is, well, maybe they do, but I don't know. So I said, well, I want to do human research. And then I asked myself, well, what do I really want to be doing? And at the time, my patients were actually talking the same language that I'd been learning from my own mindfulness practice, especially my patients with addictions. Unfortunately, we don't have great solutions for addictions. And this was 20 years ago, and we still don't have great solutions, unfortunately. So I was like, I'm really passionate about doing this work because these you know, folks with addictions are really, really struggling. And then I was thinking, well, 
why don't I try studying mindfulness? And people literally told me it was going to kill my career because back then nobody's really doing any of this research. You know, only in the last five years or so, it's become pretty popular. And so I kind of got in on the ground floor and just started studying it. And I was just blown away by how, you know, how well some of this stuff worked and how we could figure out some of the neurobiological mechanisms. But most importantly, people were coming back, whether they were my clinic patients or my research subjects or whatever, and saying, you know, I've tried everything. I tried therapy for 15 years, this or that. But, you know, I just learned how my mind worked and it helped me work this program in ways that I've never thought of before. You know, that is constantly gratifying and it just keeps me really, really excited. I just, the other day, I'd forgotten that I had like 15 years ago, there was somebody at Yale when I was there who, you know, I just kind of piloted out some of my smoking cessation stuff with him just as a friend. And I was asking him something else for some research thing a couple of days ago. And he said, hey, you know, I've, I quit 12, 13 years ago and I had totally forgotten that he'd quit smoking. So it's just like all this great stuff that just keeps feeding forward, you know, when people are really benefiting from it. And that's what really gets me stoked. I believe I heard in one video you talked about your own experience with anxiety and feelings of panic when you were practicing as a doctor. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Like you've actually lived this as well as working with patients. You felt it in your body. Oh, that too. <laughs> yeah. That time. <laughs> yeah. So when I was in residency, I started getting panic attacks. You know, these were full on wake me from sleep, terror, feeling like I'm going to die, heart racing, shorter breath, the works. And fortunately, at the time, I'd been practicing mindfulness for a while at that point. And so my mindfulness practice kicked in kind of habitually. And so I would kind of note what was going on, because that's what mindfulness is all about, is like seeing and not being identified with their thoughts and emotions and whatever. And so I'd note it. And then, of course, I was in residency. And so I went down the DSM checklist, this psychiatric checklist. And I was like, check, 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 check. Oh, you just had a full-on panic attack. <laughs> <laughs> Diagnosing yourself. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Now, what do I prescribe myself for this? <laughs> yeah, exactly. But the nice thing about that was that I started to see for myself that these mindfulness practices could help me write out full-blown panic attacks, right? Full-blown panic attacks. And that gave me a lot of confidence and faith that something like this could really help people with, you know, who are really struggling with anxiety or really struggling with an addiction or really struggling with overeating or whatever. Fast forward to the end of 2024. Think of your goals for a second. What can you do right now to give yourself the best chance of succeeding? If you want to learn a new language, you absolutely should get Babbel. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that really don't help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversation, and Babbel's tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teachings so you're ready to practice what you learned in the real world. If you're heading to another country, 
country anytime soon, start using Babbel a few weeks before you go to learn basics like how to order food, ask for directions, speak to merchants without having to consult language apps while you're away. So fun. Here's a special limited time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash raw beauty talks. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash raw beauty talks. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash raw beauty talks. Rules and restrictions may apply. This episode is brought to you by Lola V, an award-winning hair care line founded by the fabulous Jennifer Aniston. Jen got tired of the same old struggle we all face, choosing between hair products that work and ones that are actually good for us. With Lola V, that dilemma is history. We all put our hair through the ringer. That's why it's crucial to have products that not only repair the look of the damage, but also shield your locks from future harm. Enter Lola V's bestsellers, the Glossing Detangler and the Perfecting Leave-In Conditioner. They're your hair's new best friend. Friends. For a limited time, you get 15% off your entire order at lolavie.com. Just use the code RAWBEAUTYTALKS at checkout. Lolavie is all about naturally derived plant-based goodness, no silicone, sulfates, parabens, or gluten, and of course, cruelty-free and vegan. That's 15% off your order at lolavie.com with promo code RAWBEAUTYTALKS. You can only use one promo code per order and discounts can't be combined. After you purchase, they'll ask you where you heard about them. Tell them I sent you over. Okay, we're going to talk about mindfulness and how we practice that. But before we get there, what I find interesting is you identify as an addiction psychiatrist, and you've ended up talking a lot, especially in recent years about anxiety and with the release of your book, Unwinding Anxiety and your programming. What is the connection between addiction and anxiety. And perhaps first, when you're talking about working with people with addiction, I'm sure you're talking about people who have quite severe addictions, whether it's to smoking or hard drugs. But I think all of us have addictions in life that are patterns that we're in or habits that we're living out that aren't necessarily serving us. And we know it, whether it's like the extra glass of wine in the middle of the week or choosing to sit on the couch and binge Kardashians instead of getting our butt to the gym or doom scrolling, whatever it is. Like we have these little addictions that are almost normalized in society, but they're not serving us. They're not serving our mental or physical health. So let's talk first about what is addiction and then what is the relation between addiction and anxiety? Yeah, the simple definition that I learned in residency of addiction is continued use despite adverse consequences. So I like that because it's simple, but it also doesn't leave things out. And like you're highlighting, there could be all sorts of things that are socially acceptable, but they are causing adverse consequences for us. And so therefore they fall into this spectrum, you know, depending on how bad they are or how much trouble they're causing us. They fall into this spectrum of addiction. And in fact, I wrote my first book, The Craving Mind, where I just kind of highlighted, I started going through all the different ways that we can be addicted, not just to the hardcore stuff like you're talking about, but we can be addicted to distraction like you highlighted. We can be addicted to thinking. You know, I would go on these month-long meditation retreats and my brain would say, oh, it's my turn. And, you know, I had to start labeling it as the world's greatest idea because my brain was like, I have a great idea. You should get off the meditation cushion and write this idea down because you're going to win a Nobel Prize. You know, my brain was so crazy like that. 
And so I wrote an entire chapter on how we can get addicted to thinking. So we can literally get addicted to anything that we become very, very identified with. And in that sense, you know, if it's causing adverse consequences, it falls into this category or this spectrum. I really think of addiction as a spectrum. And that really starts with habits. You know, it's our habit forming brain that's trying to help us survive that, you know, these things kind of get co-opted in modern day we are great at refining things, you know, like coca leaves aren't addictive, but cocaine sure is addictive. We can make synthetic opioids that are extremely addictive and dangerous. You know, we can refine our social media experiences so that they are extremely addictive. So we can see how once humans have figured out how to kind of refine this stuff, whether it's a substance or a behavior, we can really dial it in to make it very addictive. So that's how I think of addictions. You know, it's this broad spectrum. Texting, for example, has been shown to be more dangerous than drunk driving. You know, when somebody gets a text on their phone and they just can't not look, <laughs> you know? The pull when we have like the little notification or the ding or the whatever it is, yeah. even if you're like, I want to just be in this moment that I am. It's a physical <laughs> sensation or pull, like a craving that you would have with an addiction. It is. And if you think of it this way, you know, it goes back to our most basic biological mechanism. So if we're hungry for food, our stomach rumbles and it says, go get some food. You know, we have a craving to get some food. Well, our brain is the same way. If we don't have information, if there's uncertainty out there, then our brain starts rumbling and says, go get that food in terms of information. So if we get a text on our phone and we're driving, you know, it could be the most meaningless text in the world or it could be the most important text in our world. Our brain doesn't know because it doesn't know who texted us. So our phone starts burning a hole in our pocket or our purse or whatever, you know, where we're like, oh, I, I really shouldn't check this. You know, it's dangerous to drive. And then we check. <laughs> <laughs> it's so interesting. And I've never heard somebody talk about an addiction to thought. I find that. I struggled in my 20s, which is now almost 20 years ago, with an eating disorder and emotional eating. And it's what I coach women on now. And anxiety, which has been sort of like a lifelong, I've had many years where it wasn't even present at all. And then times when it's really triggered and bumps up. I'm coming out of one of those lovely bumps right now. As everyone who's listening knows, I've talked a lot about what that's been like. And I'm finally feeling more balanced now, but also like I'm in a recovery stage, like my body has been through a six month marathon of sorts. And so it's now about replenishing and remaining calm and sticking with the habits that have helped support me in moving out of this space. One of my challenges, the reason I'm sharing this is because I would say I have a bit of an addiction to the work I do. I love what I do. I'm so passionate about it. I get that positive affirmation from it. And I have this tendency of getting myself to the point of burnout over and over again. So, I mean, this hasn't just happened once. Unfortunately, it's happened multiple times. So this time I have to really know what are those pillars that keep me sane, essentially, so that I can continue to do this work because we've seen what happens so many other times. And so I think sometimes we can have addictions that are helpful and rewarding in some moments, but if we take it too far, they become dangerous. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, my phone is very helpful for helping me navigate 
the very convoluted streets of the city of Boston, right? So it's not like our phones are the problem and we just need to avoid them, which is often what people, you know, suggest. They say, oh, you know, you're spending too much time on your phone. Well, you know, lock your phone in your trunk when you're driving or, you know, that's hard for me to navigate when my phone's in my <laughs> trunk trying to give me directions. Yes. You know, what, what was that? I, 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 can you repeat that, Siri? You know, so I think of it this way. It's, you know, if we can learn how to work with our minds these tools of technology or whatever, they're not the problem. You know, it's that addictive pull. And if we can learn to work with them, you know, by learning how our minds work, then we can master them, you know, in the sense that we don't have to be avoiding things, you know. And the other thing, you've probably talked about this before, but Often people get this sense that they just don't have enough willpower to overcome whatever the issue is. You know, it's like if they're struggling with texting too much or binging on the Kardashians or whatever, it's like, oh, I should just stop doing that, you know, and that's not how our brains work. And then they beat themselves up over saying, oh, you know, if I only had more willpower, you know. I don't think that weight loss programs set this up on purpose, but certainly some capitalize on it where it's like, oh, it's the calories in calories out formula is correct. It is correct. I learned it in medical school. And they're like, well, you failed the program. It didn't mm -hmm. fail you. You should sign yes. up for another year. <laughs> yeah. And to me, you know, it's really about, hey, let's not make people feel worse about themselves. Let's help them work with their minds. And then they don't need to sign up for another year of whatever program <laughs> that tells them they need more willpower. Yeah, I think that we, I mean, you've been obviously doing this work for a long time, but for the rest of us, we're really just starting to understand how important our mental wellness is and the well-being of our mind is in allowing us to show up physically, emotionally, spiritually for life in the way that we imagine ourselves showing up for it. Can you tell me a little bit about how we start the process of releasing some of our harmful habits or, or the things that we do that have adverse effects and shifting towards helpful habits? I'd be happy to. And so let's use anxiety as an example. And you had asked about, you know, how are anxiety and addiction related I never learned this, or maybe I slept through this class in medical school, <laughs> but I never learned that anxiety could actually be reinforced like any other habit. And that was probably one of the biggest, I say discovery. I didn't discover it. This was actually research done back in the 80s, but I discovered that research as I was doing more work with some of our other programs. You know, we developed a program for smoking cessation and found that we got five times the quit rates of gold standard treatment. You know, it was gangbusters. Wow. And then we developed this app for helping people with overeating that doesn't use willpower. And we got a 40% reduction in craving-related eating. And what somebody said to me that was using the app, she said, you know, anxiety is triggering me to eat. Can you create a program for anxiety? And I was thinking, well, I prescribe medications, but you know, they don't actually work that well. About one in five people shows a significant reduction in symptoms with best medications we have. It put a bug in my ear and I started thinking and looking back at the literature and seeing what I'd missed. And it turns out that Anxiety can actually be driven like any other habit. So let's get to your question about how can we work through this. The idea is that any habit is formed through three elements, a trigger, a behavior, and a result, or a cue. Some people like the term cue or trigger, whatever is helpful for them. So that was actually set up as a way to help us remember where food is. So think back to our ancient ancestors who didn't have refrigerators. You know, it's pretty easy to find food now. I know exactly where to go. 
But our ancestors had to, you know, forage for food. And so their brains set up this mechanism to remember where food was. So they'd find the food that was the cue. Then they would eat the food that was the behavior. And then their stomach would send this dopamine signal to their brain that said, hey, remember what you ate and where you found it. So often people describe dopamine as this pleasure molecule. It's not a pleasure molecule. It's actually a molecule that says, hey, remember, you know, it's like it's more associated with things like excitement. Because when you lay down a memory and you know to go back there, then that dopamine firing shifts from learning that to, hey, go and get that. And so we have these restless, itchy, and it's not supposed to be pleasant. If it was pleasant, we'd stay on the couch or stay in the cave and not go get the food. So it's really about getting us off our butts to do something. So that system is set up to help us remember. It's called positive reinforcement when it's pleasant things, you know, like food. And it's negative reinforcement when we learn to avoid danger. You know, so you see the saber-toothed tiger, there's the cue, the behaviors that you run away, and then the reward is that you... Didn't get eaten. You didn't get eaten, yeah, yeah. (laughs) And that feeds back that says, hey, go avoid that part of the savannah. So that system, now if we apply this to... So this is how stress eating works, for example. If we're stressed out, we learn that if we eat food, we feel better. And there's that reward that's rewarding because we're avoiding that negative emotion that made us feel stressed in the first place. Problem is, it doesn't actually fix or help us work with the thing. It just helps us avoid it for a moment. So anxiety works the same way in terms of forming habits. And so anxiety, the feeling of anxiety can be the cue. The behavior is that we start to worry. And what the research has shown is that people feel like they're more in control. And I want to emphasize feel like they're more in control because we, <laughs> when we're worrying about the future, we don't really have a lot of control over it. But it makes us feel like we're at least doing something. And that's rewarding enough that it feeds back so that the next time we're anxious, our brain says, hey, you should worry or you should distract yourself or you should do this or that. And so we get these negatively reinforced habit loops around anxiety that just drive anxiety more and more and more. So when I learned that, I was thinking, wow, we created a program, you know, we created this Unwinding Anxiety app and studied the heck out of it, which is where, you know, I wrote this book that kind of highlights all the research and the methods for it. But the three-step process really starts right there, which is the first step is we've got to map out these habit loops. You know, I'll give a concrete example. I had a patient and I write about him in the book. I had a patient who was referred to me for panic disorder and he basically had full-blown panic disorder, he had full-blown generalized anxiety disorder. He'd had severe anxiety probably for 30 years. He was 40 years of age when he came to see me and he probably had it since he was about 10, right? So the first thing we did when he came to my office was I just pulled out a piece of paper as I was taking his history, we just mapped out his habit loops. So one of them was thoughts that he was gonna get in a car accident, there's the trigger. The behavior was that he'd avoid driving on the highway. And then the result was that he wouldn't have a panic attack. So that was rewarding. And then it would feed back. So I just wrote those on a piece of paper and I drew arrows from the trigger to the behavior to the result and then back to the trigger. And his eyes got really wide. <laughs> and, and I said, so what's going on in there? And he said, I'd never realized that this is how this happens, right? So we just mapped out his habit loop around panic. And that's what anybody can do. Right. That's the first step for anybody to be able to step out of these habit loops. I found it so helpful that, in fact, we put together a PDF 
that anybody can download and use this habit mapper for free because I just found it so helpful in my clinic. And I think it's just the website's mapmyhabit.com. So anybody can go in and just start mapping out their habit loops. We'll make sure that we link to that below. I'm having a light bulb moment over here because when I'm listening to you talk about this, I'm thinking about when I have a feeling or an impulse, that discomfort that comes up in me, my impulse is to go work. It's like, let me solve this. Let me check things off my to-do list. Let me tackle this, figure this out. I need to think that idea around. I need space to think to figure this out. So it's something that I battle with a bit as a mom, because sometimes as a mom of young kids, it's like you're playing with dinosaurs on the floor and every part of my body is like, I got to work like this isn't productive enough and I'm itching. And yet I want to be the mom who's present in the moment and able to just be right. And I'm working on that, obviously. But so the trigger is a feeling of discomfort. The behavior that I then take is to try and get work done, check things off the to do list, whatever it is. And then the result is that I momentarily feel better. But the reality is it's momentarily. And then over time, what happens is I burn out. I'm not as present as I'd like to be. I lose the zest for the work I'm doing in the first place. I lose weight. I become more anxious. And the cycle just perpetuates until I'm like half dead in the bed. Yeah, you mapped it out beautifully. (laughs) I mean, that's, that's a great example of just how straightforward it is to map these things out. Everyone push pause right now on this episode, and I want you to think about one of your own habit loops. What is the trigger? Maybe it's like a grumbling in your stomach. Maybe it's a feeling of discomfort. Maybe you start to feel low. Maybe you notice that you have an impulse to grab your phone. What's the behavior? And then what's the result or the reward that keeps that loop going? And how does that loop work in the short term? And then what is the long-term result of that loop playing out. Do yourself a favor, do this right now while we've got you here. Okay, so you've identified a loop, now what? Once we identify them, this is where this somewhat counterintuitive but critical step comes in. So I think of the second step as becoming disenchanted with our old habits. And the way that this works from a neuroscience perspective is that If you look at all the formulas for behavior change, there's actually one main one that dominates that's been around since the 1970s. These two researchers, Rescorla and Wagner, figured this out. And basically what they highlighted was that we're going to lay down a reward value of a behavior so that our brain, when it's making a decision between two things, it can quickly say, oh, yeah, I like dark chocolate more than milk chocolate, for example. And so we don't have to go and relearn those things every day. And it kind of frees up our brain to learn new things, which is helpful. So the only way we can actually change a behavior is by updating that reward value. And the only way to update the reward value is by paying attention as we do the behavior. Okay. Let's say that there's a new bakery that opens up in my neighborhood. And let's say my brain stored a certain reward value for chocolate cake. So I go in and I eat their chocolate cake. And if it's like the best chocolate cake I've ever had, (laughs) my brain gives what's called the positive prediction error, meaning it was better than expected. 
and I learned something. I get this dopamine firing. My brain says, hey, remember this good bakery, good chocolate cake. So I go back and go get their cake again. If I eat it, I'm like, meh, I've had better. I get a negative prediction where my brain says, don't bother with this bakery. <laughs> and what that does is helps me become disenchanted with that bakery, for example. And we can put this in pragmatic use in real life. So for example, with my patients who want to quit smoking, I tell them to smoke. And they look at me, they're like, doc just told me to smoke, you know, because everybody's always telling them to stop smoking and they're telling themselves this. You can tell yourself until you're blue in the face. It'd be great if it worked because then I would have one visit with every patient, you know, patient wants to quit smoking. I just bless them and I say, stop smoking. And then they, you know, but that's not how it works. That's not how our brains work. No. <laughs> so here I have them smoke and I have them pay attention and they realize that cigarettes taste like crap, right? And they become disenchanted. I had a guy that had been smoking about 40 years, right? And we mapped out the number of times he'd reinforced this process. Are you ready? It was like 293,000 times. Wow. Yeah. And he, he comes back and he goes, I didn't realize, like, how did I not notice that these cigarettes taste so crappy? Well, it's a habit. You know, he's not paying attention. But if he pays attention, realizes they taste like crap and it's much easier to quit because you're going, why am I? Ugh. Yes. <laughs> you know? Remember what he's saying right now about paying attention, because that's going to tie back into mindfulness. Yes. And I'm also thinking, you know, when I work with women who are struggling with their relationship with food, so often they've been trying to avoid food, avoid food, not have it, cut things out, cut certain food groups out. And one of the first things that we do is give them permission to eat and to really let go of the restriction and the rigidity and to just eat and notice how different foods make them feel, what you know, different foods are bringing to the table, no pun intended, but are you really actually enjoying that chocolate that you're binging? Or when you pay attention, is it actually not that enjoyable and you kind of feel like shit afterwards? Excuse my French. But so yeah, paying attention, noticing what's serving you, noticing how you feel as you're doing the behavior. Right. That's a key aspect. In fact, it's funny that you mentioned this work with eating. I have a book that I've just finished writing that will come out next year that's specifically on taking a neuroscientific approach to helping people change eating habits. Amazing. And you're highlighting it. I mean, you could have written the book in that sense where it's like <laughs> really paying attention helps us see, you know, what we're actually getting. So for example, in one of the studies that I highlight in the book is that my lab, you know, we have this Eat Right Now app. We walk people through a mindful eating exercise when they have a craving for food. And we have them pay careful attention as they eat the food. And one thing that we studied was like, how quickly can that reward value change for people? We can actually mathematically model this out. It turns out, are you ready for this? I'm ready. It's only 10 to 15 times. After somebody pays attention 10 to 15 times when they're overeating, because, you know, overeating doesn't feel good, right? That reward value drops below zero and they shift their behavior. Wow. And so we can see that this can happen relatively quickly, which makes sense because our brains have to be plastic. They have to be dynamic. They have to be adaptable. You know, we don't have 20 chances to be chased by the proverbial saber-toothed tiger to realize that it's dangerous. We've got to learn that pretty quickly. So the more we pay attention, the faster that reward value can get updated. And it's not just for 
updating and helping us become disenchanted with, you know, eating junk food or overeating. For me, I write in the Eat Right Now book, it was gummy worms, you know? <laughs> you know, I used to be addicted to gummy worms and then I started paying attention and I'm like, ugh, these are kind of, you know, like they taste like petroleum, you know, they're just not very good. But the other thing that that helped me with was to help my brain start to say, well, what else is better? So this actually goes into the third step. So once we start to see exactly how rewarding or unrewarding a certain behavior is, like overeating or eating gummy worms, then our brain is still using the same principle. You know, it's going to pick a behavior that's more rewarding than something else. I think of this as finding the BBO, the bigger, better offer. And so for me, blueberries were the BBO, mm. were the bigger, better offer. And so I could compare gummy worms and blueberries and pay attention to how I felt during, how the gummy worms just made me want to eat more, whereas the blueberries were actually pretty satisfying. I felt content. I could stop when I was full. I didn't get a sugar rush and crash with the blueberries and all that. And so my brain says, well, dude, blueberries, you know, it's a no brainer. They just, they're better. And so it's much easier. Like I don't have to force myself not to have gummy worms in the house. That's what I used to do is like I'd eat them all and I'd be like, at least they're out of the house. I don't have a stomach ache tonight, but, you know, I'll reset tomorrow. You know, people can offer me gummy worms and I just imagine eating them. And my brain's like, why would you do that? I completely, (laughs) I mean, I've been there before. I've gone from binge eating and wondering like, how will I ever be a mom and have things like cheesy crackers or even cereal in the house because I'll just eat it all. Mm. Like I'm out of control around food and I can't have it in my house. Whereas now, again, 20 years later, we've got, you know, everything under the sun in our home. And it's really cool as well to see my kids who have access to things. And of course, I'm guiding them and being aware of how they feel. They've both had moments where we let them go full reign on candy and cake. And they both said, no, that does not make me feel good. I do not like that. And their bodies naturally know. But this piece around paying attention, it sounds so simple. And yet it is a practice. Like we have not been trained to pay attention in the present moment. This is something a lot of people really struggle with. So can you talk to me a little bit about that? Because I think steps two and three, becoming disenchanted with the action that you're taking and then also really understanding what is going to be the bigger, better offer requires us to focus and pay attention. So what does that look like for you? Yeah. The first thing I'll say is I'll point people in the direction of what it doesn't look like so they don't run into the same problems that I've run into. For example... For the first 10 years that I was starting to do a mindfulness practice, you know, I'd practice pretty diligently and it was basically like a forced march. I would try to force myself to pay attention to my breath. That was my object that I was using at the time. And then when my mind wandered, I'd kind of, you know, force it to go back and pay attention. I would literally sweated through t-shirts in the middle of winter on a silent meditation retreat because I was working so hard to try to force myself to pay attention. So I say that because that's not the way to go. (laughs) Wow. That's an amazing story. Yeah. But that's all, you know, trained in the Western mindset thinking that if I just do it, you know, grit my teeth, then maybe I could pay attention more. Problem is that's not how our brains work. And so it took me a while to really figure out why people kept talking about curiosity. And so 
if you look at even in the ancient Buddhist teachings, they talk about interest, you know, getting interested in something. And I really think of curiosity as a superpower because when we're curious about something, it's not hard to pay attention at all, right? So we can take a momentary interest in just about anything. It's like, oh, you know, what's the texture of this microphone in front of me look like? You know, it's like, oh, wow, there's a little pattern in the black cover of the microphone. And suddenly I'm interested and suddenly it doesn't take any effort to pay attention. And so we can actually harvest that and start to really use curiosity as a way to draw us in to the present moment rather than trying to force ourselves to pay attention to the present moment. And the nice thing about curiosity, so for example, pragmatically speaking, if somebody has a craving and they're fighting with their craving, I say, just, you know, don't fight with it. See if you can just get curious. Like, what does that craving actually feel like? Or if somebody's anxious, where do you feel that anxiety in your body? And I'll even have people ask themselves, like, is it more on the right side or the left side of my body? And what that can do is help elicit some curiosity, like, huh, where is it? And that, huh, is an indicator that we're already curious and we're starting to pay attention and we're starting to realize that, you know, these are physical sensations. They might not be pleasant, but the curiosity makes it a whole lot easier to be with whatever's happening. And we can start to see, oh, these things come and go. I don't have to force anything to happen to make them go away. They'll go away on their own. And the less I push or force or resist, the faster they'll go away. You know, I love that phrase, what we resist persists. And so, you know, it's kind of like the obstacle becomes the way. Another phrase that I love where it's like, instead of resisting what's happening, we can lean into it and get curious and see what it can teach us about our own habitual reactions and that we don't have to fear or fight against ourselves. We can simply be curious. And then that naturally trains us to pay attention because curiosity feels good. I love this so much. And I truly think curiosity and mindfulness were the cornerstone and turning point for me healing my relationship with food, undoubtedly. Mm. I thought if I didn't get away from the feelings in my body by eating or restricting what I was eating or exercising, like I had to do something to get out of the feeling that was in my body, that it would swallow me whole. And what I realized learning like second by second, to be honest, I could not sit still when I started this work was that, in fact, nothing terrible happened when I sat with those feelings and they dissipated. They started to break down and I would break through them. So one of the exercises I often do with clients is we practice just sitting with ourselves and noticing and getting curious about whatever shows up in the exact same way that you just mentioned, even giving sensations, labels like colors. What color is that feeling in your chest right now? If you had to give that a texture, what would the texture be? Oh, does it want to get bigger or smaller? And really going through your five senses can be a starting point. Like we learn in science in grade one about getting curious about what is this? What color is it? How big is it? And maybe using those as a guideline to sort of direct your curiosity. And you can do that with food. You can do that with moving your body. You can do that with your bedtime routine. I love this idea of getting curious again. So what would you say are the daily practices that keep you well in your life when you have so much going on and so many thoughts in your mind, so much information as well, probably about like all of the things we should be doing? What does self-care look like for you? 
Well, it starts and ends with curiosity, you know, and also kindness. I would put that in there as well. The kindness fits the same principle of that bigger, better offer. You know, when we judge ourselves or berate ourselves or whatever, we can ask ourselves, what do I get from that? You know, and we can see that it just doesn't feel very good. And then we can compare that to being kind to ourselves. And, you know, kindness wins hands down. It is definitely the bigger, better offer. Every time. So for me, it's about, you know, every moment, am I being curious? Am I being kind? Whether it's to myself or to others or to whatever's happening in the situation. And it's like moment to moment to moment every day. That just kind of helps me start to see. And whenever I get lost and notice, oh, where did I get lost? The curiosity is already back with me. So... You know, from a pragmatic perspective, it's really a moment-to-moment practice. I love this because I think in the world of health and wellness, what we hear so often is you need to work out every day. You need to get up at 5 a.m. and meditate for an hour and then do your gratitudes and then, you know, stack your habits and do all of these things perfectly every day and then you'll be well. Then you're going to have, you know, the life that you desire and the feelings that you desire. And I'm a health coach who doesn't do that either because some days I wake up and my body doesn't need to go for a run. My body needs rest and recovery. And with meditation and mindfulness, it's something that I am trying to keep more of a structure to find space for it day to day because it's like the first thing that can get pushed out. And I am trying to rebuild my neural pathways. So I would say that's the one thing that I'm pretty consistent with, but it doesn't have to be so rigid. Well, and the rigidity gets in the way of what the quote unquote purpose of these things is. You know, I like how you put it, do your gratitudes, right? If we do our gratitudes, it doesn't actually elicit what gratitude does. (laughs) Right. (laughs) It's basically anything that opens us up to our experience, right? Kindness opens us. Curiosity opens us. Gratitude opens us. Having a list of, I need to meditate, I need to do the gratitudes, I need to exercise, that doesn't open us. And so if we listen to the wisdom of our bodies and also learn, you know, less is definitely more, where it's not just about checking off our list of wellness things, it's about being well. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And if we can just step back and ask ourselves, you know, what do I need right now as compared to what do I think I should do? Whole different ball game. Whole different ball game. You heard it here, folks. This is the man who has been doing the research, has worked with thousands of patients. And what we're starting to hear over and over again on this podcast are similar strings and threads of information that are layering on top of one another and repeating themselves. And I'm happy for that because it's going to take us a second to rejig what health and wellness really means for all of us away from this idea of it's got to be a diet and your body has to look a certain way and really about how we feel in our mind, body, and soul. My last question for you, Dr. Brewer, if you could send an email that was going to land in the inbox of everybody's email, what would it say? (laughs) It's the last message, by the way, you died. And then it's the last message that they ever receive. (laughs) It would be something to the effect of how's your curiosity? How's your kindness? You know, just in the form of a curious question for people as compared to, you know, kind of handing down advice from on high, which doesn't work. Really just kind of drumming up that bottom-up curiosity, like, huh, 
how you doing? Yes. Yes. <laughs> and really, you know, it would be around helping people kind of just wake up and be curious, like, well, how are things going for me right now that can help us kind of let go of the things that aren't helping and then build on things that are, you know, that's back to these three steps that we talked about, right? Seeing what's not serving us in life and seeing what is. And it's not just about us. It's about, you know, when we are kind to others, that serves us and others. You know, when we're curious in a conversation as compared to trying to just force other people to to adopt our point of view, which doesn't work, that also helps us connect with others instead of dividing us from others. And boy, as a planet, do we all need to connect more <laughs> and work together and realize that we have this common thing called being human. And man, life is a lot more interesting, fun, and joyful if we can really just see the power of being curious and kind. You know, I think of that as rinse and repeat. You know, curiosity and kindness, rinse and repeat. You are wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing your deep breadth of knowledge with us today and these practical tips. I will make sure to link to your book on anxiety unwired. And you also have another incredible book, The Craving Mind. And then I also am going to provide a link to the tool that he mentioned around our habit loops. So if you want something to do right now that could change everything, I want you to click on that and go check it out and take what resonates with you from this episode. I honestly feel like this is one that I'm going to listen to three or four times and keep coming back to whenever I need a reminder that curiosity and kindness are the foundation and the starting point for everything that we're craving in our life, really, truly, beyond the chocolate and the gummy worms and the, you know, anxiety and the work to-do list check boxes, all of that stuff, all right? I will see all of you next week. Share the episode. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thanks for taking the time to listen to this week's episode. Please take a moment to rate, review, or follow on your favorite podcast app and share this episode with someone that you think could benefit. Join the Rob Talks community at Rob Talks, And remember, it's your story, your body, your mind, and your journey. So think about what resonates with you and leave the rest behind. I'll see you next week. Do you ever feel like you're struggling through motherhood? You're not alone. I'm Erica Jossa, host of the MomWell podcast, therapist and mom of three. Join me each Wednesday as I sit down with guests, including psychologists, pediatricians, psychiatrists, fertility specialists, lactation consultants, and more to unravel the myths of motherhood. With expert advice, practical tips, self-love, and some coping skills to help you along the way, you can become the mother you want to be. Listen to the MomWell podcast at momwell.com slash listen or on your favorite podcast platform.